Well, good evening. Thank you, Dr. Smale. Thank you, Dean Sork, for inviting me to speak. This is really quite an honor to give this inaugural lecture. Uh, my lab uh, is at UCLA now for the past few years, and as of one week, we're in the Terasaki building. We just moved in last week. We love it. So bone marrow transplant is, is most commonly used as part of the treatment for severe forms of cancer and leukemia when patients are given very high dose of chemotherapy or, and or radiation to eradicate resistant leukemia or, or cancer, their own bone marrow is eliminated, so the transplant of the donor marrow can provide new bone marrow stem cells that can rescue blood cell production. There's about 50,000 bone marrow transplants done worldwide, and probably 49,000 of which are, are for cancer or leukemia. So a major limit to the use of bone marrow transplants to treat these genetic diseases of blood cells is the unwanted immune responses between a patient and the transplanted cells. So we all know that if someone gets an organ transplant, gets a kidney or gets a heart, their immune system can reject it. So the patient's T cells actually are the ones that do it. They will recognize as foreign the graft and reject it. So the patients who had a matched sibling donor, this is our, our, our code word, 87% of them survived. And in fact, the ones who didn't survive all died very early, probably because they had severe infections at the time they were treated. Whereas those who had a matched unrelated donor, a parent, a half, only a half match, or a mismatched unrelated donor had much worse survival. So this illustrates that the matching of the, the graft to the patient is critical in determining the survival. And there's very similar results for leukemia and all the different applications. It's best to have a brother or sister who's a match if you need a transplant. So that leads then to what, what we're trying to do. And the idea for gene therapy is rather than trying to find someone else who's a match, is to try and have the patient be their own donor take their own bone marrow stem cells and correct them. So, that, so the key concept of gene therapy using stem cells is that by using a patient's own hematopoietic stem cells from their own bone marrow, in which the disease gene has been corrected, no immune reactions will occur and there will be better outcomes with fewer complications. The idea is that if we could put into the patient's own hematopoietic stem cells the normal gene, then all the blood cells they make, that's, that's the normal gene, the little black bar, all the blood cells coming from that cell would inherit that gene and, and be corrected. And so this is sort of the, the clinical schema of, of what we, we do. So we'd collect bone marrow from a baby, he's smiling, he would actually probably be asleep when we took it. In the laboratory, we isolate the stem cells from the bone marrow, then we add or fix the gene in the cells. We may give them some chemotherapy, then we give them back to the patient. And because they are the patient's own cells, the patient won't reject them, and they won't reject the patient. And so if we can do this effectively, we could have the same benefit with lower risks. So we use a virus to carry the gene. So viruses basically make their livings by taking their genes and putting them into cells. And so in the mid-80s or so, technology developed to harness viruses as gene delivery vehicles or vectors, as we, we call them. And so we use a type of virus called a retrovirus and what these viruses normally do is they, here's the virus, it binds to a cell, then its genetic information goes into the cell and gets copied from RNA to DNA, which is the retro step. Then that DNA copy of the virus actually goes into the cell's nucleus and connects to the DNA of the cell. So now this cell is permanently modified to have this extra bit of DNA. And now that DNA can act like any other piece of DNA, get copied into messenger RNA, made into proteins, and make new virus particles. So that's what the virus normally does. So the technology that developed was to basically, in the laboratory, remove the virus genes 
and put in the human gene that you want to get carried. And so then this virus can carry the human gene into a cell and make the missing protein. So we can clone it to here, a normal hemoglobin gene, a normal gene for, for SCID, for example, and once we get it into the patient's cells, this will then permanently make that gene product. And so we make in the laboratory these virus particles. The only genetic information they carry are our therapeutic gene. So they can't make new viruses once they go into a cell. So it's kind of a one-way delivery vehicle. It only goes into the cell once, and then it, it, it can't make more viruses. But what's left behind in the cell then is just that gene you've put into the cells, now connected to the chromosomes, so it will be inherited. And so this remain, the retrovirus DNA remains stable in the cell's chromosomes. It's passed on to all the daughter cells. And this is efficient and enduring, is needed to modify the stem cells because they're going to start dividing. So if we don't have this in a permanent linked into the DNA, it would just get, get diluted out. So one of the challenges that, that my lab's worked on for a number of years is that a major limit for these retroviruses is that they only go into dividing cells. So naturally, they're infecting cells that are, are growing. But it turns out that most of our bone marrow stem cells with the long-term ability to make blood are not dividing. They're quiescent. And that's probably a good thing. So they're sitting there resting and not picking up DNA damage. And we, they're only used when we need them, if we get anemic, if we have an infection. So therefore, a lot of our work has gone into um, trying to identify hematopoietic growth factors, the factors that normally make the, the stem cells divide, to stimulate them without driving them to become adult cells and lose their stem cell activity. And so the way we do this process now is in the laboratory, we take the patient's bone marrow stem cells that we've isolated from their bone marrow, we culture them, these blue things are supposed to be these different growth factors, these are the virus particles carrying the gene the cells need into these cells. The, the disease that we've focused on mainly over the last 20 years or so is called Severe Combined Immune Deficiency, or SCID, we, we abbreviate it. And this is the disease that's popularly known as bubble baby disease after a boy who had this disease in the 70s was kept alive for a decade or more in a germ-free environment that looked sort of like a, a bubble. He was actually in Houston in the NASA Space Center, made him a sort of a spacesuit equivalent of a germ-free environment to protect him from infections. And this is a very serious disease. Skid is a fatal disease, and typically infants with this disease are, are fine at birth, but once they start getting out into the world and encountering germs, they get infections, and because they have no protective immune system, even common cold viruses can be fatal. Um, and it's due to this congenital absence of a functioning immune system. They have no T cells, no ability to make antibodies. And we now know that there's more than a dozen genes, there's at least 20 that I know of, that have been found that if you're missing those genes, your immune system doesn't develop, so they can cause SCID. And in fact, the state of California just recently started screening for SCID in, in newborns. You know, for many years, we've screened newborns for the heel stick, for hypothyroidism and PKU, an expanding number of diseases, and SCID is now being looked for because if you discover it before a baby gets sick, they can get a transplant before they've had an infection. We talked about the hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow making all the blood cells, and they, it, it does so. So these cells are made in the bone marrow, and they're, they're released into the bloodstream. But T cells need to, need to go to finishing school first. So they leave the bone marrow, and they go to an organ called the thymus. So these stem cells go there, and that's where they learn how to become a T cell and what is self and what is non-self. And so a variety of diseases, like all the autoimmune diseases, like lupus, multiple sclerosis, are, are this process of T cell development is, is critical to those, and that's sort of the, a major part of the field of immunology.
And so in ADA-deficient skid, because an enzyme ADA is missing, the, the T cells and B cells don't develop. And so the patients are unable to make an immune system, and, that, and that's why they have skid. And so what we're doing is taking a virus carrying the ADA gene and putting it into the bone marrow stem cells of patients with ADA skid to hopefully restore this process. In 1993, we, and Dr. Smale referred to this, we treated three newborn skid babies who were identified because there were other affected patients in the family, um, so there was positive family histories, and we got their umbilical cord blood when they were born. We isolated the stem cells from those cells and used a retroviral vector to put in a normal gene into those cells. And the cells were given back when they were four days old. And what we now know, looking back 18 years or 17 years in retrospect, we really didn't do any benefit from doing this. And in fact, very few of the stem cells took up the gene and were corrected. We didn't do them any harm, but we didn't do them any benefit. And they've, they've gone out to have other treatments, and they're, they're all doing okay. And so part of the process of sort of clinical research is bench to bedside and back again. So we had worked out the techniques we used in these studies for gene transfer. We then went back to the lab and said we need to do better. New growth factors were identified, so that's what we've used in our, in our next set of trials. And so in uh, 2001, we opened up a, a second trial kind of using the same approach, but in, in this case now, before we give the cells back to the patients, we give them some chemotherapy. We had learned that, in fact, if you don't give any chemotherapy, the stem cells won't grow back, won't, won't grow after you give them back. And over the course of a year or so, they start making more and more blood cells with the gene. Here's the normal level. And parents, for example, of these children have half normal levels and are perfectly healthy. So, in fact, almost all the patients have made it into a level of making their own T cells making this missing enzyme to be, to be well. And so these patients are all doing well now four or five years out from, from the treatment. And so when, when I moved here two years ago, we opened up sort of the, the phase two of the trial, which is basically to just to treat more patients. So the trial is using a, the kind of virus I, I talked about and giving some chemotherapy. And so in our procedures, we take bone marrow from the patient in the hospital, we bring it over to our clean room laboratory, and that's where we culture it with the growth factors and the virus. And then when that process is done, which takes two to five days, the cells are basically pulled up into a syringe, taken back to the hospital, and given to the patient. Most of the studies going on are actually treating patients with different types of cancer with immunotherapy. So since I've come here in the last two years, we've treated four more of, of these patients. And we've, we've learned a couple of things. So it turned out that the first two patients we treated after coming here was the oldest such patient we treated, a 15-year-old boy and the youngest, a four-month-old little girl. And the results are very interesting in contrast. The four-month-old had the best response we've seen, and in blue is the 15-year-old the had the least response. And so I think we've learned as we look back on our patients that this is for babies. And it probably works best in, in young ones because the thymus gland is best when you're born, and it's downhill from there. So by the time you're 10 years old or 15 years old, your thymus is relatively over the hill. And so we've just recently treated a three-month-old, and again, she seems to be having the best early response. She's only out two months from her treatment. Um, in the last year, we've had the opportunity to, to move on and start working on a second disease, sickle cell disease. And so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the background and the approach we're trying to take there. Um, sickle cell disease obviously is much more common. There's probably a hundred times or, or 500 times more people with sickle cell disease than with bubble baby disease. The challenge of, of correcting the stem cells is harder, which is why we didn't go after it before. 
but we think the technology is now ready to, to approach sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease affects more than 80,000 people in the U.S. and as you know disproportionately affects minorities. One in 500 African Americans and one in 36,000 Hispanic Americans have sickle cell disease in the U.S. And it's a, it's a very severe disease with severe medical complications, pain crises, acute chest syndrome, splenic infarcts, renal failure, and patients with sickle cell disease on average currently live to be about 40 years of age, so severely shortened lifespan. And that really hasn't improved over the last two or three decades, even though the medical care has gotten better. And the mechanism of the disease, patients with sickle cell have an abnormal hemoglobin gene, so that's the genetic part of the, of the disease, that makes their red blood cells become stiff under low oxygen conditions. So then these inflexible red blood cells block small blood vessels, the capillaries and the organs, which deprive the tissue then of oxygen causing hypoxia or infarct, and inflammation in the tissues. And so this repeated deprivation of oxygen in the organs leads to the pain crises and cumulative damage to multiple organs, the bones, the kidneys, spleen, brain, lungs, etc. So it's really a very devastating sort of progressive process. In red blood cells, there's this molecule called hemoglobin. That's what carries oxygen. And it was determined by Linus Pauling in the 40s that the Every patient with sickle cell has the exact same gene mutation. Proteins are chains of amino acid, and the sixth amino acid was changed from the normal glutamine to a valine. But it's kind of also amazing that one amino acid of the whole body can lead to all those problems and even shorten life, lifespan. So the reason I'm talking about it, obviously, is that a bone marrow transplant or hematopoietic stem cell transplant can cure sickle cell disease by providing stem cells from a donor with a normal beta globin gene but the immunologic risk that I talk about limit the use of transplants. So approximately 250 patients in the U.S. with sickle cell disease have had bone marrow transplants in the last 25 years. And what we know from the results, there's about an 80 to 90 percent chance of it being successful if there's a matched sibling. So here, the, the, this might be the bioethical part of it, it's a much harder dilemma for a family or patients to, to face. With SCID, if you don't have a transplant, you will not live beyond a year. It's pretty straightforward that you'll do whatever transplant you can. With sickle cell disease, there's a 10% chance that the transplant will kill you and a 90% chance it'll keep you healthy. If you don't have that, your sickle cell disease will not kill you in the next year or so, but you probably won't live to be 50. So it's a very difficult situation in decision-making, and so very much that's why there's been such a small number. Typically, they're reserved for patients who are having lots of complications and seem to have a higher risk of early death or, or, or complications. So again, the idea would be that the same stem cell gene therapy approach we talked about could be used to treat sickle cell disease uh, that we're, we're using for SCID. And so here the idea is to insert a modified hemoglobin gene or beta-globin gene into the stem cells could lead to improvement of the anemia and other complications without the immune problems that transplants from other donors have. And so what really allowed us to do this was a large grant we received this last year from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM. As you know, in the state of California, we passed a ballot initiative in 2004 to fund stem cell research. And so we competed for and got a grant to basically try to bring this approach to the clinic. And so the goal of the grant is not actually to pay for the trial, it's to get you to the point when you're ready to open the trial, at which point we'd have to write another grant. And so what we're doing in the laboratory is we're taking human bone marrow cells, and these are the bone marrow stem cells from a normal donor's bone marrow, and we've worked out a system in the laboratory where we can drive these cells 
with certain growth factors, including erythropoietin that I talked about, to become red blood cells. So within three weeks in the laboratory, we can go from stem cells to red blood cells, and then we're asking if we introduce that normal globin gene at this point, will these red cells be normal? We're right now trying to demonstrate efficacy in human patient-derived cells, and then the process sort of gets really boring, which is to develop the clinical protocol. And so to do a clinical trial in, in patients, it's very tightly regulated and supervised as we would all want it to be. So we prepare a complete set of documents on the clinical protocol, the informed consent, the plan for how we're going to manufacture the product, in this case cells and genes, and how we're going to characterize it, how we're going to test this preclinically to make sure it's safe, how we're going to do the clinical trial, and how we're going to perform the trial, how we're going to oversee it, how we're going to document it, how we report it. And so for, we're doing this for all of our trials so that, you know, everything is being very closely regulated. Once we've developed all these documents, which we hope to do within this grant period, we would then apply for regulatory review. And there's about eight to ten different committees that we go through to get approval to do a clinical trial. So at UCLA, there's a Human Subject Protection Committee or the Institutional Review Board, a Biosafety Committee, a Scientific Protocol Oversight Committee, as well as federal committees. All of these review all these protocols to make sure that the science is reasonable, the data supporting it is reasonable, the patients are really being informed that this is research, what are their risks, what are their potential benefits. If we make it through all that, then we have to get the actual clinical grade reagents and get ready to open the trial, train the staff, and then open the trial. So this process we are going to try and do within the four years of the grant and hopefully in 2014 open, open the clinical trial. And so the clinical trial then would be done is, is like we talked about before, taking bone marrow from patients with sickle cell, isolating the stem cells, putting in this normal hemoglobin gene, giving the patients some chemotherapy, then giving them their own cells back that are hopefully corrected. So I've been talking to this point about using it to treat genetic diseases. But there's a great deal of work both at UCLA and other places to try and use these same kind of approaches to engineer the blood cells for other purposes, and one of which is to try and engineer the cells to fight off the AIDS virus. And so a number of laboratories have developed synthetic genes that can block HIV infection. And so the idea then is to insert these anti-HIV genes into blood T cells or into bone marrow stem cells and give them back to the patient they came from. So then T cells made from these stem cells containing these genes would be resistant to infection, and ideally they would improve the survival of the T cells and improve immune function. And so there was another grant from CIRM at UCLA to Irvin Chen, Zary, Jerry Zak, a number of other scientists here to try and take this concept into the clinic. There's also efforts to use these kind of gene modification approaches to treat cancer. There's a lot of work in this area, probably in the field of gene therapy. The biggest amount of work has been on cancer, which, I, which is probably appropriate. So one set of goals is to try and modify the tumor cells. If tumor cells are caused by growth or oncogenes overactive, can you shut those down? Or if it's caused by missing tumor suppressor genes, like in retinoblastoma, can you add those back? Or can we put toxin genes into the tumor cells? Well, the problem, all of those approaches require you to be perfect. You have to get into 100 percent of, of the tumor cells or it will just grow back. And so these approaches are, are probably beyond our current capabilities. But what is currently possible is to either put in genes to target not the tumor cells themselves, but either the blood vessels or the cells in their niche that are keeping them alive, or to use the immune system. And that's, again, where probably the most work is going on. So you can take tumor cells and add genes to them that make them activate the immune system to stimulate the patient's own immune system to reject 
the cancer. Or you can take their T cells or their stem cells and modify them to target them specifically against the cancer cells. And there are trials like that ongoing here right now for melanoma, for glioblastoma, for lung tumors. And there's a whole consortium of scientists both here in the Johnson Cancer Center and the Broad Stem Cell Center at Caltech and USC working on these um, collaboratively to try and move them to the clinic. Last concept to talk about is, up until now, that's all been about adding genes to cells. For genetic diseases, where we'd really like to get to one day is rather than adding a new copy, which we actually do what's, what's shown here, actually fix the DNA, get into the cell and not add a new copy, but fix the broken gene. And so we're just beginning to develop these techniques. So gene correction, rather than gene addition methods, seek to repair the disease-causing mutation of a patient's own gene, rather than adding a new copy of the relevant gene. And gene correction could have advantages because now the therapeutic gene is in its normal location in the chromosomes. And just like in real estate, for genes and chromosomes, location, location, location is important for how the gene acts. And so it should be expressed in the more normal pattern. And because there may be problems from when we're inserting genes with viruses randomly throughout the genome, because that could lead to activation of genes when they're in the wrong place. So we're, we're now studying gene correction of stem cells trying to harness DNA repair processes the cells have themselves to repair DNA called homologous recombination. Where I think we may be going in the future is to harness those stem cells that I talked about before. So embryonic stem cells are, are the cells, as I showed you early on, can be made from the embryos. In the last few years, one of the exciting new advances is that we can actually take tissue cells from patients, a skin biopsy, some blood cells, and reprogram them back to a stem cell state. And so if we wanted to treat patients with the genetic diseases, we could, for example, take a little piece of skin, grow the cells in culture, fix the gene by either adding a gene or correcting the gene, as we talked about, and then reprogramming them back to the very primitive state where they can give rise to everything, then drive them forward to become the tissue cells we want. For example, hematopoietic stem cells derived from the patients, genetically corrected, and grown up in large numbers and given back to the patients. And so there's a lot of work going on here in the stem cell center to try and develop each of these stages. And each one of these is a whole multiple labs worth of work to, to solve these problems. So I just want to stop then by acknowledging everyone who's made it possible for me to be at UCLA. I've been here now two years as of February, February 1st with my two-year anniversary. I go home literally every day and tell my wife, I am so happy to be at UCLA. So Owen Witte, who's the head of the Broad Stem Cell Center, really led the recruit. I, I've, I've known him for, for many years, and we've been working on it together on this immunotherapy project. Judy Gasson, the head of the Cancer Center, has also been very supportive. The deans of the, of the medical school, uh, the chairs of both, of both my departments, Jeff Miller of MIMG and Ed McCabe of Pediatrics, Jimmy Conimo, Kathy Sakamoto, and John Braun, were all very instrumental in putting together the resources I needed to come here and, and do what I do. Um, I have funding for all this. All this work is supported by, by grant funding from the NIH, from Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Allergy and Infectious Disease, and the FDA. I talked about the funding we have from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. We have a grant for the, from the Doris Duke Foundation for that gene correction stuff I talked about at the end to try and correct the sickle mutation. And we're involved in a project at UC San Diego on juvenile diabetes. So I just want to thank, this is my group here in front of the new Terasaki building. So this is the group that, that does all the work I talked to you about. And I'll stop there. Thank you.